I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World, or welcome to the show if this is your first time listening. If it is your first time listening, this is a pretty good episode to tune into. Um, This is the second episode that I recorded with my dad. The first one was like a year and a half ago. I think it was episode 21, so pretty early on in the show. I highly recommend that episode. It was definitely one of my most popular episodes uh, for multiple reasons. My dad and I talk about why that may have been in the conversation you're about to hear. But if you do enjoy this show with him, I highly recommend going back and taking a listen to that first episode. It's definitely not necessary to listen to this one. I think we provide adequate context. Um, But if you enjoy what he has to say, I definitely recommend the first one. Um, It's really nice to be able to share my father's wisdom with all of you and with as many people as possible. He played such an integral and imperative role in um, obviously helping me become the person that I am, but specifically, I think, around some of the things that I am most passionate about, like identity and sexuality and gender. And um, I, yeah, all of that really comes from him. Um, Obviously, some of it comes from my mother and and my schooling and all of that as well. But um, not only sort of the direct teaching that my dad did, but just as a result of growing up with him as a father, truly gave me all of the context for the current worldview that I have and what I share on the show. So that makes me feel really good that I could, that I can spread that, um, I can spread his knowledge far and wide. And also I think, you know, I recognize, and we discussed this a bit in the last episode and in this one, how unique our relationship really is. Um, I know that just growing up with a father who was really present and uh, really loving and really accepting of and promoting of, you know, one's emotional life, uh, not to mention the fact that he's gay, so his sort of expression of or embodiment of masculinity and femininity and sexuality is really unique. So this is a very, very unique relationship that I recognize as such. Um, and I know that it's so rare, and that's unfortunate because I think, unfortunately, so many of us have had not the best experiences with our fathers and certainly weren't able to be emotionally close to them and... Um, and of course, you know, this isn't their fault. I, I think we all, I don't know, grew up with a lack of fluency of how to be in the world in an appropriate, loving, inclusive way. Um, so 
I hope that if you are someone who didn't have the best experience with your dad or just with masculinity or with men in general growing up, I hope that this offers um, some some hope and some perspective around the spectrum of of fathers and the spectrum of masculinity. Um, so basically what I'm saying is you can adopt my dad as your dad if you want. I'm totally cool with that, and I know he would be too. Um, I'm really glad that this conversation happened when it did. Uh, we've gone back and forth with scheduling a bunch and actually recorded a previous episode during the election week that we both decided was not good enough to release. Um, we talk about why on the show, on the conversation that you're about to hear. But um, all that said, I'm glad that it all turned out the way that it did because I have been talking a lot about identity the past couple episodes, especially in the last couple intros. And, uh, you know, my dad is really the reason I started thinking about identity to begin with at age 10 when I found out he was gay and then he, you know, was so influential and in sort of helping to inspire my curiosity about identity and figuring out who we are and what words to use or not to use. And, um, yeah, I think his, he's an artistic director at a theater in, um, St. Paul, Minnesota right now, but he was the artistic director of a theater in the town that I grew up in. And I didn't totally realize it until we had this conversation, how much that part of my life, the fact that I basically grew up in a theater, I wanted to be an actress for so long, this whole idea of stories and telling stories, uh, and how that as well, the prominence of storytelling, um, also may have helped to shape my views around identity and what identity means. And I won't say too much about that because he talks about it on the podcast in a more eloquent way, but uh, yeah, really glad that this episode happened when it did. I am not going to do a very long intro this time because I did two extremely long intros uh, the past couple weeks, which I try not to do that frequently, although a friend of ours that was just visiting recently was like, I feel like you do long intros all the time. Not in a bad way, but just saying, like, sometimes I don't need to do long intros. <laughs> uh, but if you'd like to hear me ramble on about identity and uh, sexuality and gender, definitely recommend the last two intros if you haven't caught those this time. Uh, I'm not going to say much more than I've already said. If you would like to support the podcast, we have so many cool things happening on Patreon. I feel like Patreon is finally like, I was going to use the word climaxing, I'm just going to use that word. Um, but it's like peaking <laughs> in a really amazing way. We have so many cool things going on. Uh, we have WhatsApp group chats. I am just about to launch uh, the fourth group chat. So if you would like to be one of the founding members of the fourth WhatsApp group chat with other listeners, please sign up for Patreon at the $10 level. This is an opportunity for you to get to know other listeners, ask me questions directly. I always participate. There's so many cool things happening in these groups, whether it's like reaching out to each other for support. In one of the groups, uh, this woman, Candace, has every Friday been drawing tarot cards for all of us and <laughs> sending us what she's drawn. And they've been so accurate and so meaningful and awesome. It's just really cool to see like how each of the individual groups become their own little pod um, and really get to get close to each other. I decided to do multiple groups because obviously having like a WhatsApp chat with hundreds of people in it would be insane. And this way you get to know people better. I am playing around with the idea of maybe doing Slack 
or Discord in addition to the WhatsApp groups or instead of. If you currently are a patron or you want to become a patron but are not signing up because you think WhatsApp's weird, I would love to get everyone's feedback about this. Um, I've looked into it a couple times and I think I settled on WhatsApp just because it was free and sort of low maintenance to manage and set up. Um, but I feel that I would like to circle back around on some of these other options before uh, the patron, the Patreon becomes too big to sort of switch everyone over. So definitely send me your thoughts, whether you're a patron now or you are interested in signing up. Um, one of the other things we do uh, in the Patreon community is that we have a book club and then we do live Zoom discussions about the book uh, after we read it. So even if you're in a different WhatsApp group from someone, the book club chats are a great, a great way to meet other people in different groups. We also have a contact list for every patron at every level. Um, and it says there like where everyone's located and how to best reach out to them and what their main interests are. Obviously a big part of what I'm doing is trying to connect you to one another. Um, and also just really support you guys. Something I've just recently started is to do patron-led workshops. I think I'm also going to open this up to workshops taught by not just patrons, but also former guests on the show. Um, and the point here is not to, you know, put this really clean, amazing presentation together and have it be like super done and perfect. But I'd really like for just all of us to participate in one another's creative process. So the point of these workshops is not that they're super polished and perfect, but that you can sort of test them out on other patrons in my community. Um, so we had um, Isabel taught seasonal foraging a week or so ago. That was amazing. I immediately um, did a bunch of things that she suggested and bought a book uh, to help me learn about the plants where I live in Colorado. Um, I am going to be teaching an astrology one-on-one -on -one course. It's probably going to be like two to three hours long. We're covering lots of things. Basically, I want to give all of you the skills to learn a bit of astrology yourself so that you can start to deconstruct your own birth chart. Um, if you've been listening for a long time, you know that I've been studying astrology for a few years now. I used to give readings to my listeners and just sort of took some time off from the whole thing to reassess how I wanted to use astrology in my life and integrate it into this career because I just really don't like the commodification of spirituality at all. Um, and I just felt icky participating in it. And I didn't really want to be like the voice of God telling you what your chart says. I'd much rather give all of you the tools and empower you to learn about some of these things yourself. So all that said, um, this particular course, the astrology one-on-one -on -one course, it's going to be offered on January 5th. And this one's going to be open to all patrons at all levels. So normally these workshops are just going to be open to the $10 and up patrons. Um, but this one will be available to all. Uh, and also, as I've mentioned, um, I'm going to be having the women of cosmic tonic on the podcast to talk more about astrology and maybe some other astrologers or astrologically minded people as well. Um, and so this 101 course is, is meant to kind of give you all a basis for understanding those episodes. If that's something you're interested in. Um, yeah, we also, I just got stickers. So those are available for patrons, t-shirts, um, really the list of stuff I'm offering at this point is like overwhelmingly long, which hopefully isn't a bad thing. I'm, I'm hoping that it's valuable to all of you, but it is definitely quickly becoming a very thriving community. So thank you to everyone who has supported me on Patreon thus far. If you would like to sign up, um, you can find out all of these details, all the different levels, etc. Patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. 
Um, we're also in the middle of our winter book club right now, reading Cosmos and Psyche. So if you're an astrologically minded person or you're interested in astrology, this is definitely, definitely the time to get involved with Patreon. I would imagine since I've been talking so much about astrology recently that this fourth WhatsApp chat will be very much a group of people that are interested in this. It seems that like every group I create is somehow their interests are very specific to whatever I was like talking about at that time, if that makes sense. So when we were reading braiding sweetgrass and talking a lot about foraging and the planet, uh, that group's like really full of, um, people who are fascinated by foraging and plants and all of this. So it's sort of cool to see how these groups are sort of synchronistically creating themselves and attracting like-minded people. So uh, patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. If you do not want to participate in the community in that fashion, but you still want to do something to support the show, please head over to iTunes where you can hit subscribe. And then if you scroll down past all the episodes, you can leave some stars and a review. This helps the podcast show up more in search results. Um, and it helps makes the podcast look more legitimate. So if there's some famous person that's trying to decide whether they should come on the show or not, that's what they're going to check to see, like, is this podcast legit and, are people going to hear it? So uh, if you have five seconds to spare, I'd really appreciate it. And of course, just you listening, sharing episodes with friends, posting on social media, all of that brings me so much joy. Um, I was just listening to my friend Jake and Marin's podcast. Marin was on the last episode. They have a podcast called Death in the Garden, a whole project called Death in the Garden that I highly recommend. But um, Jake said something in his intro to the episode they did with Derek Jensen, which I highly recommend, by the way. Um, he said something about how like these projects are so much work and happen so much in isolation. Like we're all sort of just sitting in our homes behind computer screens, working our asses off to put all this out there. It's not sort of the same as, you know, giving a speech in front of lots of people or, um, yeah, putting on a show where you can like engage with the audience to some extent. It's very separate in that way. And so whenever all of you reach out in any capacity or share something or send a question or a comment or review the podcast or join the Patreon, um, it's just really nice to like connect those dots and make that web. So yeah, even if it might feel silly to you to like send a note or an Instagram message to us on this side of the table, um, we really enjoy it because it makes us feel less like we're talking into a computer or a microphone into a black hole and more like we're actually a part of a community. So yeah. And this community is, I mean, I say this all the time, but so cool. And, um, you know, when I started this podcast, I really didn't have a community or a friend group. And I thought to myself at the time, like, I don't know where these people are that I want to be friends with. So I'm just going to have to like get on a megaphone and shout my beliefs outward into the universe and hope that it attracts people who are like me. Um, and so I know all of you find this podcast valuable, but honestly, I did it for selfish reasons of finding friends and it worked. It's the best solution ever. Um, and I think we all need to do that sometimes, you know, like we are in weird, dispersed, isolated communities where the only, you know, um, the only thing we have in common with the people we live with or live around is that like they live in the same place as us or their kids go to the same school as our kids go to. Um, there's not really anything else to connect us to those people. And so I think in many ways, you don't have to necessarily start a podcast, but I think sometimes 
you know, we wait around to, to wait for our community to find us. And really, we need to start the community. We need to be the leader, or at least the leader for a time. Um, and so I encourage all of you, if you're feeling isolated, to either opt in to the Patreon community on my podcast, if this feels like it resonates for you. And if not, yeah, find ways to sort of start it yourself. I think we need more leaders. I think many of you are leaders <laughs> that are listening, um, but probably have just lived a life like I did, sort of feeling guilty for assuming that position and, and thinking that it was egoic or narcissistic. And of course it can be, but it definitely does not have to be. And who knows? Who knows who might be around you that's just waiting for you to say something so they can be like, yeah, me too. Thank you for saying that. Now we can be friends. Anyway, all that to say, I am going to play you in today with a cheesy, cheesy song called When You Come Back Down by Nickel Creek. I remember hearing this song for the first time quite a while ago, and uh, I just always really liked it. it. It's cheesy, but it's beautiful, and the message is so amazing, and you know, so many of us, I know so many of you and so many people that I've met in person, like especially in our 20s, we go through such a process of letting things go and losing people in our lives. And of course, hopefully, I think we all experience to some extent, though, that there are people that are just waiting for us to blossom, waiting for us to grow up, waiting for us to evolve and bloom, and that they were right there waiting for us with open arms when we completed that process. And as devastating as it is to find out who those people aren't, the people that do abandon us or the people that were enmeshed in some sort of codependent relationship with us that are not happy about the changes that we've made in our lives. As as horrifying and devastating and scary as that is, um, the, the knowing and the feeling of having people in your life that are so thrilled for you to embody yourself more fully um, I definitely feel like my dad was one of the few people <laughs> during my sort of initiatory dark night of the soul that was just so supportive on any terms, even if like I was mad at him or even if I was processing, you know, my childhood trauma around him and the divorce of, of him and my mom. And he was just always very encouraging and was really the person that like in my darkest moments when I was like, what the fuck am I doing? Is this going to be worth it? I have no idea what's coming next. I'm miserable and alone and sick and blah, blah, blah. He was the one that just kept encouraging me that there was a light, even if I couldn't see it. And then once that light revealed itself, was thrilled for me that it was even brighter and more magnificent than he could ever imagine or tell me about. So I hope that we all have at least one of those people in our lives. If not, I will be that person for you. Or my dad can be that person for you. Um, there is light at the end of the tunnel. These dark, dark periods do lead to so much more joy and happiness. And I feel very thankful that um, I had someone leading me through those dark times. So you're not alone. We all crawl out of it. It's very human and... Uh, Eventually, you will feel grateful for the darkness. You will feel grateful to be have to be given the opportunity to evolve in this way. There are so many people that don't get that or who aren't capable of going through that process. So, yeah, it's all very nuanced, of course, very complex. The, the shittiest things can also be seen as the most beautiful if you look at them slightly differently. So... Enjoy the song, enjoy this episode, and I will catch you on the other end. 
You gotta leave me now. You gotta go alone. You gotta chase a dream, one that's all your own before it slips away. When you're flying high, take my heart along. I'll be the harmony to every lonely song that you learn to play. When you're soaring through the air, I'll be your solid ground. Take every chance you dare. I'll still be there when you come back down. When you come back down. Turn. My greatest fear will be that you will crash and burn, and I won't feel your fire. I'll be the other hand that always holds the line, connecting in between your sweetheart and mine. I'm strung out on that wire, and I'll be on. So, okay. Um, so I'm here with my dad, technically for the third time because I, <laughs> I was thinking yesterday how like perfect it is. Like, of course, the two of us record a whole podcast, and our like perfectionist, grandiose selves were like, I think we could do better, <laughs> and just scrap it and do it again. <laughs> 
Uh, anyway, um, yeah, we had a I, that was a hard time. I feel like we talked like during the election week, and I feel like I was sort of losing my mind during that period of time. So it doesn't surprise me that we had a very like intense <laughs> philosophical discussion trying to like make sense of our world. Right, and I just I think I guess I wondered if after it was over that we all we just sounded like we were just you know up our own. <laughs> asses like thinking we were so smart talking about everything i don't know <laughs> who knows no one will be able to judge because of course we're telling your listeners about it without actually ever letting them know what it was that we did <laughs> yeah exactly it is funny though because i had like a list of things i wanted to talk to you about and like we we're an hour and 15 minutes in i was like what just happened like what are we talking about right <laughs> it was like yeah it was like philosophical jargony I don't know what anyway um so we're back we're back to do it again so yeah so I our episode was one of my most popular episodes it still is actually um and no pressure uh, yeah <laughs> so I definitely wanted to have you back on to talk about different things but also sort of elaborate on our previous discussion um it's been fascinating to me because I think uh, especially like we talked a lot about identity on the first podcast and how every single time I, I tell someone my dad's gay, they ask the same question, which is like, did he know he was gay before he married your mom? Like they want to know the sort of like exact trajectory of identification and like when you switched and all this stuff. And the actual story is like a lot more nuanced and complex than that. Um, and I, I think maybe because of being raised by you, and also studying gender and sexuality in school and having this like very, I feel like well-rounded understanding of the complexity of like how we come to identify ourselves as something. Um, it's, it's almost sometimes frustrating. I, I think for me to like navigate the world because my own self-identification or the way that I see the world is like so loosey goosey and fluid, but that doesn't always align with people who feel like the only way to attain like validity or equal rights is to sort of go in really hard on like an identity, whether that's a sexual orientation or like a gender identity or like even non-monogamy or like vegetarianism. Right. Um, and I'm just curious because I know like you were sort of in and out of the sort of overarching like gay rights movement because I feel like you got married and had kids and but I'm 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 interested to hear how you navigated that like how your own identity was defined by other gay people or like other gay men or like defined by the movement that was encompassing gay men at the time um and whether yeah, like what your journey has been with all of that. I know that's probably a super broad question, but... Well, yeah, let's go, because there were a couple of things you said there that I'd like to impact. One of them is I was thinking about why, if people thought it was a popular session. And, and, it, and it occurred to me that probably what makes it popular is that we talked a lot about um, father-daughter relationship, right? We talked about what it was like for mm. you to be growing up. And one thing that every, most people have in common is they have parents, and so my hunch is, is that people were sort of asking themselves or telling themselves, like, 
probably mostly like, wow, that is so bizarrely different than the way I was raised. And <laughs> this relationship between these two people <laughs> sounds nothing like a father-daughter relationship. So, um, yeah. so, so maybe it's useful for us to think about so that people can identify more to think about it in terms of that. Um, and uh, I guess I've, I've forgotten a little bit about the question you asked, but in terms of the – and maybe it's also important for anybody who didn't listen to that past podcast – um, I'm learning too that sometimes it's helpful just to let's just give a little background. So the answer to Go that thing it. that everyone asks you, right? They ask you and they ask me too. In fact, I feel like I should just yeah. sort of have a, like a little index card that I here's my business <laughs> card with my basic the high points of my history. Um, so I grew up in a house, pretty liberal household in the '70s, um, and sort of quasi came out as gay when I was an adolescent. Although I thought of myself as bisexual at the time, um, and and I wasn't using, you know, there's a, what's, there's a great joke about bisexual just being a stop on the way to gay town. Um, and there's yeah. sort of common, like a common parlance with amongst gay men that bisexual is just the term that you use while you're trying to get comfortable, right, with being gay. Um, but I was really bisexual. I mean, I'm not sure if that was just because I was a horny teenager and having sex constantly. That was another unique feature of my house is that my parents were, in addition to being clinical psychologists, sex therapists, and there was, you know, like I found gay porn in my house, and it was such a weird time. There were no, I mean, not that everyone in the 70s had the experience that I had in my household, because I know they definitely didn't. Um, it was sort of freakishly strange, but the things that most people are so uptight about, namely um, emotion, conflict, sexuality, um, sex, um, was, you know, like really not a problem in my house. I mean, it's what we talked about, mm. what we trafficked in. Um, the issue in, in, in my house growing up was that there were not enough boundaries. I mean, I don't think there was enough structure. Um, I mean, even to the point that um, when I was in my early adolescence, 13 and 14, my parents had a really booming psychotherapy business, including doing a fair amount of group therapy sessions. And I'm, I almost can't bring the words to my mouth, but they let me sit in on all these adult group therapy sessions. And not only did they let me, like other adults tolerated it. And now I look yeah. back on it and I think, what the hell was that? Like, you know, and at the time, of course, I'm 13 or 14 and I think I'm precocious. So I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm totally handling this. Um, but of course, it was completely overstimulating, um, yeah. which is really, you know, if you had to use the the title of my autobiography probably should be overstimulated because from the time I was really little, I was exposed to things that I probably should not have been exposed to. And, mm. you know, maybe the reason why I deal with as much anxiety as I do and not that it's crippling, but, um, yeah, like a lot of stimulation. Yeah. So back to that thing about growing up. So throughout my entire adolescence, I had, um, relationships with, you know, um, what would we call them? Not They weren't boys and girls. They weren't quite men and women yet. Um, and I would sort of go back and forth and had sort of long-term attachments. I mean, to the extent that any adolescent has a long-term attachment. You know, long-term in adolescence is, what, three months? Um, yeah. But, you know, that seemed like a really long time when you were 15 or 16. Yeah. Um, you know, I lived in New York for a summer on my own. Anyway, so throughout that whole time period, it was only when I got into the early 80s when I couple, I started clocking a couple things. One of them was that I didn't, because of all that therapy and because of the value on 
open communication and really genuine intimacy, whatever whatever wacky overstimulation I was exposed to, I did learn some really important skills about how to be intimate and how to get close to people and how to sort out what is your sort of family of origin stuff that you bring into interactions and what's going on kind of in the moment of that conversation. Um, mm. Which if it weren't for the fact that only about 2% of the population is sort of interested in navigating in that space, if more people did, like it's a really good skill and I'm really glad I have it. Um, and I think it's made my life much richer. Um, and so when I was in my late, late teens, 1920, um, I started to notice that my interactions with the men I were with or um, young men I, I was with were um, just not very satisfying. I mean, women were just much more emotionally um, fluent, it seemed like. And because I felt like such a freak to begin with, anybody that would actually sit and, you know, I could say, well, that hurt my feelings. And, um, you know, any, any girl that I was with would be like, Oh my God, he's talking about his feelings. So, you know, that made me like, I, 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 I could be like a stud, right? Just cause I could literally get any girl I wanted because I was kind of conversant in my emotional interior, emotional life. Um, and in fact, in college, you know, dated lots of women and men. So it was all over the place. But I didn't, I did start to notice that the, the men seemed more, um, I mean, I think I would have said at the time, they're just all fucked up and women seemed more grounded and more willing to mm. engage. Um, and of course, then the other thing that happens, people started dying from a very strange disease and, um, and no one knew why. Um, yeah but we knew it was gay people more than straight people. And so I sort of made a bargain with myself that I can only describe in retrospect as a bargain. Um, but was, well, wait a minute, if I'm into men and women, even if for slightly different reasons, I should really cultivate the, the, the heterosexual part of me because straight people aren't dying. Um, and you know, I met your mom and she was very charismatic and she very much wanted children very quickly. And, um, as you know, your mom is quite persuasive when she wants something that she wants, she finds a way to get it. Um, good for her. And so pretty soon we had kids. Um, and then I noticed what started happening was that people assumed that because I was in a heterosexual marriage, that everything that I just said wasn't true. And so I'd be sitting around in conversations and men would be talking about their girlfriends in high school. And I'm not sure anybody ever turned to me and said, what about your girlfriends? And, uh, but you know, what I was quickly aware of is that I was in a dilemma. Was I going to, you know, was I going to expose in the first five minutes of a conversation with everybody, you know, well, yes, I'm in a committed heterosexual relationship and I'm married, but, you know, in my past, and you can't even, it's just, there's no way, once you start to explain it, it just starts to unravel. Right. Um, yeah. Um, so anyway, that was the, that's the sort of quick history that when, I guess if I were to say it in one sentence, I would say that. I was in a in a um, I was bisexual as a teenager. I was in a in a committed relationship with a woman and had kids and went into that relationship completely sincerely um, and with no blinders on about the fact that I had uh, feelings for men as well. But I thought, well, if I'm in this relationship, it'll kind of work itself out. And then through time, found that I was more comfortable being gay and and sort of found out that. Really, the problem was I wasn't choosing the right men, not that men were incapable of being intimate. Right. So much for a short summary. <clears throat> yeah, we're both really good at the short summary. Um, 
As in not very Jokes. good at it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As in that's a joke. The economy, economy of expression is not anything that I put top of my list of skills. <laughs> so, okay. So then, so thank you for that. I think that will be helpful to everyone listening. You so know, then it's like you that thing me- at the beginning of a two-part where they go, last week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Last week on, on Anya and her on dad. On the previous episode, yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> So, so then you got married, you had kids, um, you, I think, I mean, it's fascinating because, and this is another thing we talked about on the show that I think exists for all of us in some capacity, that bargaining that we do of like, I can't, I don't, I don't have any examples of, or I just don't think that I can have everything that I want. And so what can I sort of put aside or settle for and what can I move into? And I feel like so many of us do that in relationships just like simply because we don't have those examples in front of us of of something else and then I think Mm. as we get older as it happened for you I mean I'm sure a myriad of things were happening but on the one hand like you at that point were older in your late 20s early 30s and were now meeting men that were a little bit more capable of that emotional intimacy that I think you thought wasn't yeah. Um, but I feel like that's what you said, at least in part, that, that that you had made this assumption about men that then that assumption started to break down as you got older and that like you thought, yeah. oh, yeah, like, I guess I can maybe have this with a man. And so if that's the case, like, what does that mean? Um, well, and I think it may have just excuse me for interrupting you, but it yeah. may have been that thing that just happens when you get to be a little older where you realize that no you know, you're, you're looking outwardly for happiness. When I have this right job or once I get to my ideal weight or when I meet this right person, I'm going to finally feel complete. And, and, uh, if you're lucky, you know, you learn reasonably early that that's definitely not true. Uh, no, no, nothing outside you is going to give you a feeling of completion. And so you start to, so I guess it was a combination of both choosing different men and also sort of like not expecting those men that I chose to be like, you know, sweep right. me off my feet and solve all my problems. And so those two things converged into a more realistic, um, a more realistic view. Right. And then I assume you had a sort of similar experience to when you were like in this heterosexual life and relationship once you got out of that and were then deciding to live life as a gay man. I assume that your past in the heterosexual sense made you equally as different amongst other gay men. Like the fact that you were married, the fact that you had children. Um, I feel like I, I'm just now remembering that you went to that, this like gay fathers group at some point that I came to and spoke at. Um, and I do feel like even then, I don't remember how old I was, but pretty young, but I think even then I sort of could ascertain the difference between, um, I mean, I guess they were all fathers, but I just feel like the fact that you had had this, I don't know, we had such an open sort of like, this isn't that weird or a big deal kind of a way of incorporating this into our family life. And I remember going to that group and, and seeing all these men like really struggling with how to integrate all these different aspects of their identity. It's so, the world has so, the emphasis on the, the fear of honest communication like we that with that none of us or very few of us as children were taught that hurts that hurts mm. my feelings that makes me angry 
Um, I love you. You are, I'm so excited to be around you. You know, just those basic ways that we could communicate simple, um, sort of communicate, I mean, simple emotion content, emotional content to each other. Um, and then also just the whole thing around sex, which, you know, we, we, we have a whole culture, public culture around eating, which is not really any different at the end of the day than sex. They're both just things that you do, right? So, yeah. I mean, I just, can you imagine what the world would be like if people were not so afraid of the truth and were not so afraid of sex and orientation and the things around that? I mean, uh, on the other hand, I'm not sure if there would be anything on TV or any books on the shelves because like almost <laughs> everything that you can, you know, right? Almost everything you engage yeah. with is somehow a... Um, you know, dealing with those, um, inventions really. Um, mm-hmm. so and I, in terms of your, your question about identity, it's interesting as you're saying this now, um, you know, the, the, the focus on identity. Um, I mean, the idea that, um, identity was a construction or even really that, that, um, I mean, don't forget for the longest time and to still to this day, many people think of homosexuality as a choice. And yeah. um, what that means is that they're ignorant to the concept of identity, right? Because, yeah. and, and they, you know, the whole, the whole huge debate about was it innate or was it environmental? You know, were you, were you born yeah. gay or were you not born gay? And so it was what such a huge part of uh, that. Right. Yeah. Well, and I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like, like just, overwhelmingly it's, so. <laughs> it, but even within that, the conversation about, quote unquote identity that we would have right now, that was like working on an abacus versus working on a high speed computer. I mean, the understandings of what those things were, were so really so primitive um, that it's almost like silly to go back and talk about the past in today's terms, like anywhere that you could go back to the forties and people talk about the construction of, you know, orientation or identity. Like people would just be like, we don't know what you're talking. Those words make no sense. Um, mm-hmm. And it really wasn't that. I mean, you, when you know, you said you're so being around gay men, I didn't even, for me, it was just about like, uh, this is who I am. And I'm with people who are like me. I mean, I know that sounds really basic. It just didn't get more complicated in your mind than that. Um, you just were for me anyway. And, and again, with all this therapy and parents who were therapists, you know, I had some sophisticated tools for how to talk about this stuff. And yet, if I'm really honest with myself, when I look back at that time, it was more just, you know, you know, the sort of, um, social equivalent of going out and putting your face in the sun. It was just like, well, that's where I belong. This is where the sun is shining on me. I'm going to stay here. And you really didn't go mm-hmm. much further than that. Um, I didn't, yeah. I, I didn't think of, of now I am who I think I should be. I just thought I'm with people who I could fall in love with and want to have sex with and who um, like, you know, flowers and display windows and whatever traditional sort of like stereotypical gay things <laughs> that I was doing that so many of those other gay men also did. And so it's like, okay, and this is, this is, the, this is the place where I belong. And it, I just, you didn't yeah. think about it in much more complex terms than that. But there were ways, I mean, unless I'm misremembering, but I do feel like you sometimes would talk about like mainstream gay culture and ways that you felt like it wasn't necessarily your scene or like there were like, and and I guess my framework is like as a young person now in the world with the internet, there are all these like identitarian 
movements, right? All these, like, whether it's Black Lives Matter or the non-binary movement or Me Too, it's all about, like, us as women or, like, us as non-binary people. And I'm, I, in this day and age, and I get why it's happening, I think because when we're trying to attain rights or are trying to uh, make sure that everyone feels and is valid in their own identity or however they want to define that, whoever they want to have sex with, whatever, like it doesn't matter to me. But in, in trying to ensure that equality and justice, there's this sort of like, um, what's the word? It's not a very like complex expression of an identity. It's like you're gay. If you're, if you're non-binary, it's like sort of like, the, you know, you have to fall in line with these, this set of terminology, you know, here's what the movement represents and you are a part of this movement. And there isn't, there's a lot of like, like, I don't know if you've heard about cancel culture. as young, oh, sure. Yeah, I'm sure you have. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of this, like there's no space for nuance or differing expressions or differing opinions or dissenting opinions or like the, the complexity has been sort of washed out and, I don't know if that's a result of the internet um, or if that's a common a trait of just like any group of people trying to attain equal rights. There has to be this sort of like, you know, this is innate. We were born with this. Here's what this means. We deserve equal rights. And that's, you know, and, and I wonder if that existed pre-internet in a way and whether you felt... um not pressured to necessarily, because I think you are always probably a pretty free thinker, but like noticing ways in which maybe you and your identity or your life or your personhood differed from this sort of overarching culture that was the sort of mainstream expression of homosexuality at that time. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think there was, you know, um, I think, you know, getting, I mean, I was pretty excited. I had been, you know, married and, and sort of living in the suburbs. That sounds more traditional than it really was. But, um, you know, once I was out and sort of doing things in New York City and everything, I suddenly felt like I was 23 again um, and uh, with a little bit more wisdom. And, and, and I did a lot of the things once or twice that, um, you know, on the fringes of, you know, doing ecstasy and going out to Fire Island and dancing all night and um, having sex with lots of people at once. And, you know, I sort of ticked all the boxes of all the crazy <laughs> shit I was supposed to do. Um, and some of that was fun. You know, it's just not really sustainable yeah. after a while. And I don't think that I, I'm not sure that's so specific to culture or identity so much. as It's really just about, you know, you're either somebody that can ultimately be stimulated by um, or needs to be stimulated by, you know, being in the cultural equivalent of a disco all the time. Uh, I don't mean literally a disco. I just mean like lots of like, oh my God, so much activity, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Or you want to be sort of yeah. in a quieter sort of one-on-one space. And and I was I was always sort of wanting to drift to a quieter one-on-one space. I mean, even at a big party, I'm the kind of person that finds somebody to talk to and goes off to talk to that person um, and connect. Yeah. Uh, or I have to leave the party because I can't. So I think it was sort of a similar thing for me. It was whatever, you know, uh, discomfort I had with quote-unquote uh, mainstream gay culture, I think just really in some ways just had to do with my, you know, the, um, my own sort of geography of introversion and extroversion. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, in a way it must sort of be disappointing now because I, I do, you know, when I hear people talk about identity and like, yeah, it gets so, 
it's so intense. And I just want to say, you know, I don't know. I look back at the stuff that I talk to myself about in terms of identity. And now you look at it and you go, it's just quaint. I, you know, I mean, in the same way that, you know, um, you know, the, the homemaker and breadwinner coming home to a house behind a white picket fence now just seems ridiculous. Um, whatever is going on right now is going to look really sort of, you know, it's, it's going to look like Farrah Fawcett hair and big shouldered coats later on. We're just going to go like, what were we thinking? Um, right. at, at the end of the day, all of this stuff is just shit we make up to explain the unknown. Right. So yeah, it's, we don't, yeah, well, that's what I was trying to like get you to say, I guess, because there's the piece about like, okay, I'm gay because like there's this penis on penis action, but what that means as far as like what (laughs) I wear, like what I wear or how I speak or who I hang out with or what job I have or what my hobbies are, what my interests are, like whether or not this was a hundred percent nature or nurture, you know, it's, uh, that's that all of that noise i agree is this sort of need to control and again i struggle because like i don't want to say i don't understand why we don't have the desire to control like i of course well, i yeah, get and, it and not all that stuff is meaningless i mean yeah. you know i mean i mean i just finished the last sentence by saying all that stuff is meaningless and now i'm saying it's not all meaningless but <laughs> um it, it, i think it's it, it can have meaning as but with a kind of healthy awareness that it's really just a, it's, it's make believe, right. right. We're, we're, we're yeah. making it up. I mean, you yeah. know, I happen to think that thing about religion, like we can't fucking explain anything. So, well, we just took an origin story. There were a lot of them <laughs> and we just adopted it and we started saying, yeah, that's really what happened. Um, and that's yeah. okay. I'm in the theater. That's what we do for a living. We make up stories to try to explain the unknown. So for me, that feels like play. And there's nothing wrong with that. I guess where it starts to get into the when, – when people use it in such a serious way and they start you know, hating each other, canceling each other, killing each other, discriminating against each other, that's when you start to go, yeah, this, this play stuff could, can be in the wrong hands, be kind of dangerous. Yeah. Um, right. and, and I guess I would say the, it, it is, it, the, it's exhausting, honestly, the, the thought of talking about identity and, and – pronouns and will I say the wrong thing and use the wrong word and and if everybody would adopt a little bit more of a sense of playfulness around it and and understand that it's a dynamic rolling process where we're all still learning and you know the hubris of the idea that what you're what you've now discovered about your identity is in some way fixed it's you know it's fucking laughable i mean none of us have any idea and all you need to do is look at the last 30 years and recognize that this is so dynamic and so changing that you know yeah. our conversations now about identity are really going to be like those moments when you look at your bad hair in the yearbook um you know in 20 years we're just going to go what were we thinking and we were so sure of it um so I think a healthy, um, you know, sort of what, what are we doing here attitude. Um, and, you know, I guess this is not really your question, but I think another thing that would really help for me that I feel uh, some sadness about is in the midst of all this conversation and, you know, what really is, becomes a kind of immediate militancy about whatever new discovery somebody's had about how they decide that they're going to identify themselves um, really trumps um, 
God, that word now is no longer good. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I like flinched. It's like we should just be re- <laughs> removed from the dictionary. Um, but it, it makes um, uh, so much so that I forgot exactly what I was talking about. Oh, I, I was going to say that the, the whole basic thing, going full circle to what we talked about at the beginning about human interaction and sharing emotions, right? So it, it, rather than cancel somebody or rather than be militant about who you are and about how that excludes you from other people, if you had a kind of, hey, this is what I'm wearing today, because that's pretty much what it is. It's an outfit. It's, it's effectively fashion. And there's nothing wrong with fashion, yeah. um, but it but it should be treated as fashion that can be taken off and put on and will change over time. And you you will it will get too tight and be too baggy depending on where you are. Um, and then actually spend our energy using basic interaction skills like, hey, wow, you know that feels funny to me when you say that, um, and, and and have some kind of emotional exchange um, rather than I I feel like it's it's become. Rather than fashion, it has really become a suit of armor, and it's keeping people away from each other, and even in some, to some extent away from themselves. Uh, you know, that, that's easy for me to say from mm-hmm. my objective point of view, um, but it, it does feel a little, it's very involving. It's like very, like, it's very busy. I, I can't even keep up with um, the changing conversation about identity. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's interesting, too, because I... I feel like, and maybe it's just a, an effect of being young and not having lived through a ton of different types of identity movements like this, and maybe because I was raised by you and then, of course, studied, you know, gender and sexuality in school, which was like, I mean, I can't even say, like, I've told the story before, but it's probably worth repeating that bef- you got divorced uh, from my mom when I was five, but I didn't actually find out you were gay with that word associated with what was going on until I was 10. And so from five to 10, I was very, it was very obvious to me that you were living with a man. You were in a long-term relationship with a man, although I think I just saw it as a friendship, but I also saw you kiss. I saw you hold hands. I saw you sleep in the same bed. He was there for all of the holidays. Um, And then there was the whole other piece about the fact that I feel like he was also sort of experimenting with gender and would show up in skirts and all this stuff. So that was also sort of a sign that something was maybe different. Um, (laughs) But like, it didn't even really occur to me. Like it, I, it wasn't, uh, it, I, it's so hard to explain now post that having the well, framework and the words you, and the history eight year, but like eight years old i mean of course it didn't yeah, occur to you of course it didn't occur to me but like but what's crazy is that so then five years pass i you and mom decided you were going to tell me you were going to tell mika and i that you were gay when we asked the question so of course i eventually clues started appearing and i started to get a little confused getting older and there was a lot of sort of like anti-gay rhetoric floating around and i didn't really know what gay was and Anyway, so then when I found out that you were gay, meaning you and that word were somehow like together or, you know, um, or to use my analogy earlier that I was wearing it, right? I was wearing my gay coat. Right, exactly. Like nothing had changed except now there was a word to associate with you and your behavior, I guess, your relationship, your life, whatever. And I find out and you know, you were living quite close and mom was like, okay, I'm going to have dad come over. And I didn't want you to come over. And 
I will, I vividly remember even at 10, like I should have, you know, been a little bit more realistic, but I was legitimately afraid you'd walk in and have like a different face or horns. Like it was like some mm. weird, like anti-Jewish thing going on in my head or something. And I thought mm. like, oh, gay horns, like, okay. Um, and that was like a legitimate, like me in my 10 year old brain, like I was like, please, I don't want him to come over because I love him and I think he's cool. And what you're telling me now is he's gay and gay is like bad as far as I've heard. And so is there something huge that I missed about him? But then you walked through the door and you were exactly the same. And from that moment on, even though I didn't have context and language to understand it, what that told me was that like, oh, that word's that's like bullshit. Like that's just it's a it's a fucking ornament on a tree. It's a label. Like that, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then like. Thankfully, studying gender and sexuality in college and learning that like identity and or, you know, again, there's like the you have sex with men, but there's then there's the identity attached to that. Um, and to learn that all of this is just a social or cultural construction was such a huge relief to me mm. to to ground my own feeling about this in like a more sort of like historical anthropological framework or something. Um, but still to this day, like that isn't really a lesson that's taught. Like that's not something we're really told <laughs> as a Western culture. We don't have that understanding necessarily that like there's behavior and then there's identity and that identity shifts over time and it's constructed. And that doesn't mean you're not valid for wanting to have sex with men, but you understand that the culture around that, the identity around that is a construction. Um, and it's just a, it's a weird thing for me because I feel like I navigate through the world being so grateful for that knowledge. But any, a lot of times when I try to express that I'm seen as like some sort of exclusionary bigot, because what is heard is like, you're telling me my identity isn't legitimate or something. Um, well, and I think that comes from a sincere place. I mean, as we were discussing this, it occurs to me that I think the issues around gender and sexuality and orientation are qualitatively and quantitatively different than issues around racial identity. Um, and uh, I think it's almost like you have to sort of rub your tummy and pat your head at the same time and say, this is meaningful and this is meaningless. Yes. All at once. Oh, for sure. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think, you know, just a healthy sense of humor about ourselves would, would probably help. But that's, you know, that's easy to say from a position of privilege. Um, if you are, um, you know, if you've been, you know, if you are being systematically oppressed, um, but I don't know, because, because you're a lesbian or because you're um, an effeminate gay man or, uh, or whatever, um, you know, the, 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 the virulence of your feeling about or how important it is that your identity be respected can be a matter of life and death yeah. um, or certainly, For you sure. know, happiness and not. So I, I do understand the, um, the fervor with it. It does seem like a matter of degree though, in like in, in context and who you're talking to and yeah. choosing where, what forum, you know, in which to express this and to deal with it and to instantly expect that the rest of the world is going to conform to talking about you in the way you want to be talked about um, immediately and being sort of annoyed that they're not. Um, well, that's a waste of your life. Um, you know, that just yeah. seems like a, it seems like a waste of time. 
Yeah. And I, I wonder though, I mean, it's interesting, the conversation about race. I just had two bi biracial friends of mine on the podcast to talk about race. And of course, like they're, they live in America. One was born in America. One was born elsewhere. So has like Caribbean roots and was born in the Netherlands. So his, I mean, he looks black, he is biracial, but he looks black. So it's like this, you know, everyone's navigating identity to some extent. And I think it always is this interaction between like innate as in skin color, innate as in I want to fuck men. And then this other thing, this other sort of larger sphere that we put ourselves in, which then involves a lot of other qualities and, and oftentimes um, these sort of social justice movements based around them. Um, but I think there always is, I think that's like one of the unfortunate, I don't know, again, unfortunate, but understandable parts of how do you have a movement of nuance? You know, like you have to sort of say <laughs> something like believe all women in order to get this out there, even if that's an oversimplification of what we should be doing, you know, mm -hmm. like I sort of understand the, um, uh, yeah, the sort of singular expression or or mindset around something um, in order to get to where we're going. But I feel like along the way, if we're not conscious of the fact, like that's the purpose of it, but that doesn't mean that that's inclusive of understanding identity or that that's, you know, whatever you experience is the same as someone else. Um, and, and I think also like then we get into when in speaking about privilege, you know, this, like your experience as a gay man is somehow put on a value like level compared to someone else's systemic oppression, you know, because of their race, because of their gender, whatever. Um, and I feel like we're not like, I know you told some stories about, you know, at, at work and stuff that like you, what you thought you were doing was like getting on someone's level to be like, but I'm a gay dude. Like I totally get prejudice, you know? Um, and yet we're sort of met with like, but that's not like this. Um, and while I understand that, I feel like it would be a lot better if we could sort of see the similarities in our experience and. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so much of this is so ambivalent. I, I think you're, um, you're right. And then I, I think that the, the, again, I would go back to sort of my, the exchange of emotional content and being able to say that hurt my feelings, or this is how that feels for me. And then being able to talk honestly, the whole conversation about, um, you know, affinity is like, well, I do to the extent that I can understand what it's like to be, um, a person of color, you know, of course I'm going to relate it to whatever feelings of, uh, me being ostracized or being different, I did for being gay. Um, at the same time, it's clearly different. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you, you know, and you, the, you, the, I don't know, do you need to compare? I guess it's human nature to compare. Um, the, the, the sort of deeper I get into, um, learning about racial inequity and, um, to the extent that I can ever fully, um, not even fully, but even partially sort of understand what it must feel like or what, what it is, what it is like for, um, people of color and particularly black people who have been oppressed through one sort of systemic form of oppression or another for 400 years. Um, and really, where, really when you get into the history of all that, and maybe this is where uncovering something really interesting, which is the, the, the navel gazing and the preoccupation with the current moment. 
is not really helpful, right? Um, mm-hmm. We should be students of history. And if you really, any, any like um, reading into the history of the way black people have been treated in this country for 400 years will start to reveal to you um, the, the foolishness of the concepts that you've accepted as fact for the longest time. And I think yeah. the same thing is probably true around some of this. The somehow the 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 subjectivity of more and more about me and how I feel and how I'm perceived and the way you treat me and the way you think of me and oh for fuck's sake, just go read a history book. Do you know what I mean? Get yourself get yourself out of your head and and yes, the, all that may be true, but but you know, you weren't humanity wasn't just sprung into existence when Facebook was created. So maybe like let's figure out how to go back and I think some of these issues with different names um, have been around for a really long time. And, yeah. uh, and, and yeah, I, we would, uh, there, there's, there's a fair amount of, um, what's the word, um, aggression, uh, I think present in dialogues today. Um, I can't help but think that after the debasing effects of the Trump presidency and, um, I, you know, I recognize in myself a kind of like immediate, uh, um, other othering all the time, right? Like, Oh, those people. And, 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 I, you know, sometimes it's impossible to like survive without excluding, um, some people into that group. But if, you know, the more we use compassion, um, I know this sounds sort of Pollyanna, but, um, I've been sort of trying to, when I get pissed off and feel myself going, God damn them or this group of people or whatever. I sort of ask myself the question that a director would often encourage an actor to ask about a character they were playing, which is to take a fully compassionate view of that person and imagine, imagine that everything they're doing comes from a good, positive, well-meaning place. And then when you imagine that, what I have found is not only, first of all, just calms you down a little bit. It's just a nicer, it's just, you're just more in harmony with the universe when you're uh, allowing, assuming goodness in other people than you are when you're assuming um, aggression or hostile intent. Um, But the other thing is it turns out to be um, strategic as well, because the more compassion, the more compassion I am able to employ when looking at other people, and particularly people whose actions I don't understand, who or who uh, feel like I get I'm, that hurt my feelings or make me mad, um, the more I'm able to get insight into their particular circumstance, um, and 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 then therefore find an entry point into a dialogue about it. Um, right. You know, again, I keep, we just keep going around in a circle here. That's all easy to say when you're not oppressed. I think when you're oppressed. You know what the uprising that's going on right now, and trying to be for people to be treated equally, um, and and for the world to be made more um, equitable, um, is important work. And there's no question that um, you know the white supremacist culture has kept a lot of people down, and and the heterosexist culture has kept a lot of people out. And so there's a reason for people to be up in arms. Um, yeah. And, and it's very hard, I think, to separate yourself from your um, crusade, uh, you know, no matter how justified and necessary that crusade is, um, it isn't everything about you. Right. And I agree. And I, I talk about that all the time, too, like even just relating it to my own personal journey of like coming to terms with 
the injustice in my own personal life, like for sure. And you were witness to this, like (laughs) there was like a very solid period of time of like rage and anger where I was just like, and and I remember you saying to me, like, I get why you're identifying so much with that anger, because I feel like it's probably the most authentic emotion you felt in a long time. And it, it makes sense. And I, I definitely, I don't know. Yeah, I definitely lived there. Like that was my framework for a long time. And then I think eventually what I realized was that that anger and rage was sort of like, um, a, like I, it was like a cannonball, you know, like, or the thing that launches the cannonball. Like it's what got me out. It's what like, ah, I'm just mm. going to like break through the wall. And that had to happen in order for me to get out of there. I couldn't have done that in a more sort of like compassionate, quiet way. Like I had to kind of bust out. Um, but then for sure, I feel like that anger and rage gave way to a much more nuanced experience and allowed me to, you know, have more compassion and see things in a more contextual way. And I I guess the only issue that I have or the concern I have about that period of time where we're trying to fight against injustice is like, I don't want it to alienate allies, even if those allies don't look like us or didn't have the same experience. I feel like we're so, and that's where the identity comes back. It's like, if you're so uh, sure that your identity as a woman, let's say, is makes you like in every way imaginable different from someone who's a man, like at some point, like there has to be some sort of communication. At some point we have to be able to sit at the table Mm -hmm. and exist together Um, and sometimes I worry that maybe that's not where we're going, that we're going to get sort of stuck in this desire for like compensatory injustice, not actual equality and justice. Somebody introduced the concept of fetishizing difference and Mm. that in, in the, in the assertion of your individual identity and like, Oh, this is who I am and I'm different than you and you must accept me. Um, as, again, as important as that is, it can turn into uh, fetishizing difference. And I, I've used that expression before, and people get like, "What fetishizing? What does that mean?" I guess they're you know thinking about latex, um, but yeah. you know, giving giving too much credence to uh, to difference can be uh, a dangerous thing. And that really, what we are looking for is some way to kind of it'd be nice to find a way to connect more with each other and find more of that. Uh, this is it's just on a basic level. If we spend so much time asserting difference um, and rejecting others who are not like us and um, needing needing to be on a crusade to create the space for whatever our identity is. That's just the less time that's available for interacting with other people and asking questions like, hey, for me, this normally feels like this. Is that what it feels like for you? And um, mm-hmm. and to be giving some, some, some energy into exchange of information rather than Mm-hmm. further isolating ourselves into separate groups. Um, yeah. They can't be, they can't be helpful in the long run. No. And I, 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 I wonder, I'm thinking about that sort of like phrase that's often used about how we're like wounded in relationship. And so therefore we need to be sort of healed in relationship and like how much of the trauma that oppressed people have experienced is about, the relation to privileged people, the relationship to people who are not as oppressed. And to me, it seems very clear that like those relationships need to be mended. 
you know, if, if we, like, even when the Me Too movement started, my, my, my most prominent feeling was like, oh my God, I would love to have a conversation with Louis CK, not cancel him. Like I understood the rage and the anger and he was being used as an example, I guess at the time. But to me, the, the overwhelming desire was to sit at the table with him. And granted, like I wasn't hurt by him specifically. I have been hurt by people who I couldn't immediately sit at a table with, but that is where I wanted to go. Even if I knew I wasn't ready to at a time, you know, like I didn't, I cut people out of my life because I had to in order to survive in that moment. But long-term, I actually think a big part of the healing and in the healing of my own trauma was completing that circle, coming back to the table and sitting down. Um, Now, of course, not everyone's uh, able to do that or capable of doing that or even desiring of doing that. Mm -hmm. But um, I just think that the, yeah, the, the pure sort of indefinite rage or anger. I'm just like, I don't know. I hope we get back. I hope we circle back. Um, But I sometimes have a hard time, like in that ragey phase. uh, I just want to be like, Hey, like I just, I hope we're coming back around. Stay there as, as long as you need, but like, let's sit at the table eventually. And I, you know, someone said to me recently, like, I think some of these things are just sensitive right now for a reason, as in like, do you have to be that person that's thinking two steps ahead? Can you just let people have their moment? Mm. Um, and I, I totally see that, but I feel like in my own personal experience, if I didn't, the people that were the most meaningful for me in my like dark night of the soul were people like you or like grandma, for example, who were like, I love you. And I see you and these feelings are valid. And, and, your emotions are valid and like, yeah, do you, but also sort of like called me out when I needed to be called out or asked me sort of tough and uncomfortable questions while simultaneously loving and accepting and validating me. Like to me, those things happening together were imperative to me ending up where I am. But had, you know, had you not had nobody challenged me, had nobody asked me to think about my own role, asked me to think about my own agency and responsibility and any of that, like, I think I might've just gotten lost in the anger, like drowned in that, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think it's like to employ, I just keep thinking of the word curiosity. Mm. You know, if you, if, if, um, that, 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 the even shorter version of like exchanging some honest emotional content with each other could really just be boiled right down to curiosity. Um, you know, if we start our conversations by saying, you know, are you okay? And what's happening for you? Oh, and tell me more about that. And, um, it's such a simple thing to do, but, um, if you want to talk about ways to understand each other, asking questions and really getting yourself interested in what the other person is so illuminating, so much more illuminating than spending time, you know, asserting your own identity, which while important, um, in the absence of that thing that we're, where we make connection to other people, uh, is, right. uh, yeah, I think it's kind of, it, it's empty. So switching gears sort of slightly speaking about identity, I wanted to talk about theater because you've spent basically your entire adult life <laughs> in the theater, making up stories, yeah. making up stories. Um, and now we're in this very bizarre moment where the theater is not can't 
is unable to sort of happen, at least in the way that it was happening before. And I, uh, speaking about identity, I mean, even when I think about you, theater makes up a huge piece of that puzzle, like (laughs) part of your personality and who you are. Um, so I'm, I'm curious how this whole experience has affected you. And I know that when we, in the conversation that we won't release, you said something like, I don't, I don't know who I am anymore. Um, and I guess it's not just theater either. You also spent your basically entire adult life living in New York city and now are spending most of your time living in your other apartment in St. Paul. Um, so I, I wonder if you've had some of these thoughts around, you know, your location, of where you live, plus your entire sort of career and way of looking at the world have, have shifted and, and whether or not that's affected you in any like less obvious ways. Um, yeah. I mean, I think one, of course, one of the things that I think has really happened is, you know, that I'm very, um, moved by and concerned about is the way when I talk to uh, people in my profession who are out of work, uh, and there are so many artists and actors, you know, people for whom their second job was waiting on tables, you know, and both of those things or bartending or, right. or something similar that's equally endangered. Um, and, you know, the, unfortunately also gathering in large groups of people in tight spaces is probably the very last thing that's going to be possible, um, on the road back. And so, um, it's some pretty serious stuff. And, and I think the, the, uh, um, you know, the, it, more than just serious. I mean, it's sort of life-changing. The, and, the, and the people that are without work and can't feed themselves who have survived as artists um, and, and really can't hire themselves, you know, they need, they, need, they need theater to come back in order to be able to work. Uh, I don't, I, 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 you know, my heart goes out to them and I, I, I don't know what to do about that. Uh, I think some people are trying to figure out you know, something more than just, well, what do I do instead? People are obviously going, trying to get other jobs, but then also people are trying to redefine what the nature of their art is, um, and, and figuring out how to, how to, out of their own existing skill sets and talents and connections, build new, um, basically new job descriptions for themselves. Um, Mm -hmm. so, uh, there's that it's sobering uh, and, and, and it's difficult. Um, I, you know, I'm very lucky in that because I'm in a leadership position, I was not, um, laid off. Um, and, and yet now the amount of, I mean, I'm just now fully accustomed to the fact that I'm just always three months behind. Um, there's, uh, I've always been a very hard worker, but there's just no way I can get anywhere. I just, you know, just shit falls away. You just have to let stuff go and it just doesn't get done. And then you, you know, reap the consequences of it because there's not enough hours in the day and there's, there are very few people to help, um, which is in no way to minimize the people that do help me. Um, yeah. So I guess the other sort of larger sort of social issues, I mean, I'm quite hopeful at the moment, actually, it feels like with the vaccine and like the, uh, we can sort of see you know, this coming back, but you know, theater's not going to, there's not going to be any theater to speak of in, in 2021. Um, you know, it's it, where most people are looking forward to, you know, 13 months from now, um, is the sort of earliest time when things can quote unquote, get back to normal. Um, but in the theater in New York or where the most vibrant community is, you know, Broadway is very dependent on tourism. And, uh, it's one thing when people in America start coming back, it'll be another when tourists come back. Um, so that may take even longer. And anybody's guess about how all that's going to work. Um, I will say that I think the, for me, the, there's a couple of silver linings. Um, and, and I have to hold on to hope. Um, one of them is, is that I have always been very incredibly moved by, 
the experience of theater when you, I mean, even just something as simple as the people starting to congregate in the lobby and the, and this sort of excited buzz or standing under the marquee and getting ready to go in. For me, that's incredibly moving. And, and because I'm sensing the power and the importance of that moment, gathering together in groups to hear stories is so important. And we think of it as entertainment. We think of it as, you know, um, extracurricular fun. And the reason why people go to such great lengths to go to sporting events and, and, to, and um, religious services and theater and movies and is because of the incredible importance of the social gathering and being around other human beings. And so, you know, it's just unexplainable. I think it's so primal. Um, so I think when people come back, people are now starting to ache for that kind of gathering and will, as a result, have a greater appreciation for really how sacred it is and how important it is. Um, and I think, therefore, their experiences in when they go to the theater will be more elevated um, or maybe they'll be more uh, thicker, deeper. You know, they'll um, experience it in a deeper way. Um, they'll have the same fun and same enjoyment that they had before, but they'll also feel their soul being nourished and recognize the nourishing aspects of it in ways that they didn't. Um, and, and I also think there's going to be a surge of excitement when, when it does feel like it's safe again, you know, it's going to be like a shampoo commercial with people running across lobbies <laughs> who haven't seen each other. Oh my God, how have you been? You know, then I think I'm really excited for that moment. I mean, that's just going to be great. Um, and you know, I'm hoping that the world has become more empathetic. I mean, kind of connecting these issues that we've talked about, that people will be more sophisticated about, um, issues around mm -hmm. racial equity. They will understand more about oppression. They'll know what a little bit more about white supremacy is. They'll want other people to, they're going to want the world to be a more equitable place. And that may mean they listen to words differently. That may mean that there's a, um, a, a hunger again for what plays do as opposed to what musicals do. And don't get me wrong. I love a musical, but um, there's something about plays, which is really powerful, which has, um, they're harder and harder to do uh, in my profession. They they go in and out of fashion in New York, and there's still quite an appetite for it there. But I think, um, and there's still there is everywhere else too. But on a sort of large level, I'm really hopeful that plays um, people the spoken word basically will become more important. So I have a lot of hope um, for the future, um, but maybe yeah. Uh, and it's you know there's so many unknowns. Uh, and yet, you know, just the the change in administration and, you know, the idea that oh, finally, you know, that we're the drunk driver, uh, I mean, the bus driver isn't drunk anymore. It's such a relief to think about there being somebody sane at the top. Um, we, none of us can underestimate the importance of the, a leader in any circumstance. I think leaders are have all kinds of power um, that even those who dismiss it, like even though I've held Trump at bay and been like, wow, crazy psycho person, put him over there. I actually think that I have been affected. I think I have started to behave in different ways because I live in the culture that he's helped change. So um, right. it seems quite hopeful that um, now with a, with a proper adult um, in the White House, that at least some of that some of that type of rage as you were talking about level, right? That'll come down to a lower volume and there'll be maybe some more civilized dis discourse um, that, that all feels hopeful. Yeah. I, I think it's, it is interesting to think about like, I'm sort of 
in thinking of those sort of primal qualities of being human, things that I think no matter what happens, we would sort of circle back around to no matter what. I mean, theater is such a fucking amazing example of that. It's like, it doesn't really matter if it's like outside or inside or if there's like one person watching or seven people watching, you know, this whole, you know, writing and performance and like metabolizing of stories I think is very, very integral to our species. Mm. And I'm, I'm almost sort of looking forward to like what that evolution looks like as far as theater goes. And it was interesting when you were talking too about people appreciating it more or just in a different way. Like I remember, you know, I, I mean, I wanted to act obviously growing up for a long time and eventually sort of like lost my interest in theater or at least a good bit of it. Um, but it was interesting because right coming out of my own period of isolation and like, uh, not seeing anybody and going through a really hard emotional time. And then I came to the city to see a girl from the North country. And I, I wonder like that effect. I mean, I don't, I can't recall ever like crying in a theater before. Um, and I, I think probably that's partially because that, (laughs) that, um, musical was so well done. Uh, but also I think just because I was more capable of receiving it, it's like artwork, you know, I feel like I across the board was like, Oh, I like understand art now, you know, (laughs) because like I've had this experience that sort of opened me up to it. So yeah, it is sort of fascinating to see how that might, um, how that might happen in a more sort of collective way. That certainly is, you know, it's a, it's a, a beautiful piece that you mentioned. I think it's a very, very special piece of theater. Um, the first time I've written a personal check of my own to invest yeah. and got my got my mom and stepfather to invest. And, um, you know, and then, of course, the moment that it went to Broadway and opened <laughs> up and it shut down because of COVID. But um, the good news is that particular production is in very good shape financially through a, some some excellent management producing um, and a good insurance policy. Um, so I think it, it, to the extent that anything can survive, it has a very, very good shot at it. And it is a beautiful piece of work and very humane. Um, and uh, um, so for anybody who's listening that can, at whatever point, Girl from the North Country comes into your neighborhood, um, <laughs> support our family and go see it. But also do yourself a favor because it's a really, really beautiful, very unusual. So like yeah. uh, I, I see theater all the time. I actually, the other day I was starting to think of myself as the, my maybe my number one skill in life is a theater goer. Um, I've gone to the theater in seventeen countries, um, and I, 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 you know, that's a lot of countries. Um, you know, yeah. and, and I've been in the tiniest little theaters, and you know, one of the some of the largest theaters that that have ever been in existence. And um, I, some of the shows that I've seen, I, we saw something in in the Netherlands, which was um, a theater that was a, a, a an audience was in place. And the theater stage went around you like a like a fairy like mm. a mirror. So you were standing in the center, and then the stages moved around you in a sequence. And then the, each time it moved into a new place, there was a new scene. And one at one time, that doors opened to the outside, and an actual plane, you know, pulled onto the tarmac, and a car, and like a character got out of a a vintage Rolls Royce and walked onto the plane and the plane Whoa. moved away from the thing and the door closed again. And the, and the next scene, water was lapping up on the real lapping up on the shore. So, I mean that like that talk about strange. That's the strangest, uh, one of the strangest <laughs> theatrical settings I've ever been in. Um, yeah. but that, um, 
I forgot why I, I got into that, but the, the, the power of going to the theater, uh, I just can't even, the, 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 just the knowing that you're conjuring, the, the knowing that you're making stories. Um, yeah. I mean, maybe that sort of brings us full circle in our conversation because all that stuff about identity and gayness and where do you fit in and who you are and how you're different. And at the end of the day, we're all just getting up in front of, uh, you know, banging a drum and telling a story. Um, you know, around a campfire uh, and, and our interpersonal, uh, in, in our Facebook and our own sort of cancel culture and assertion of our own identity, again, setting aside the seriousness of racial oppression, because I think that's a special case, um, is in some ways a, um, you know, it's a, it's a show. It's, um, um, it's jazz hands. Yeah. Which again, yeah, going for so, for a full circle doesn't make it invalid. Not at know, all. Not no, no, real, no, exactly. You know? yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a, I mean, if you, I, whether it's true or not that humans are the only people that tell stories or the only species that tell stories, there may be, I mean, there's some evidence that dolphins do as well. Um, and, mm. and there's probably, you know, like again, the hubris that we think we know what's going on. Right. But, um, but certainly storytelling is at least unique amongst species and it should be valued for its, um, you know, at some point theater and religion were the same thing. There was, you know, it was, it was, a, it was, it, there was no difference. I think they both sort of grew mm. off in different directions. Uh, um, yeah. Yeah. It's a, I just read a really, you should read it at some point. I want to like buy a copy and send it to everyone I know, but this really beautifully written book called Braiding Sweetgrass. Um, and we read it, I have a book club for the podcast, so we all read it together, which was even oh, nice. cooler. It was sort of like, a, yeah, I'm like, I don't ever want to read books alone anymore. Like the reading them alongside other people has been such a fucking meaningful experience. But anyway, she, uh, in this book, it's all about, she's an ecologist, so she has a PhD, but she also comes from an indigenous culture. And so the whole book is trying to, is trying to weave together like indigenous spiritual practices around the planet and the earth and plants with the sort of scientific, scientific ecological framework as well. So sort of like just trying to bring them together instead of having them be pushed apart, which is, I think Mm. a lot of what people do, but, but she said her, a lot of the book was about how we think as humans that we're somehow outside of or separate from nature, but really we have a role to play here, just like mm. any other species or plant. Mm. And that she said one of the most, imp- or not one of the most important, she said the the way in which we are unique is that we tell stories. And like, mm. how can we tell a different story about our relationship to the planet or the role we play in the world in order to fix so many of these problems. Yeah, I thought right. that was just such a, yeah, that's lovely. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 And I, I think too, I mean, not to like, you know, just, um, promote girl from the North country, but I do think that piece does speak to what we're talking about. Like, obviously that story takes place in a certain time in a, in a certain setting, but there are so many different themes that weave through it around race and around family and around trauma. And like, it's such a universal, I think that's why it affected me. Like, of course I bear no relation to like the set and setting of this, of this piece, but yet it was a, it was a story that expressed universal Mm. human emotions and experiences. Um, So yeah, I hope I, and hope I do think it will come back, but that's, it's, that made me feel, it was like my own circle sort of coming back to theater in my own way of being like, okay, I can get down with this. Um, this is cool. And 
yeah, hope that can continue when life sort of yeah you and you you and me both. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, thanks, Dad. Love you. Love you too. It's always. I think this one was good. I don't think we need to redo it again. (laughs) We. I don't. Yeah, I think maybe we weren't quite so up our own ass as much. So yeah. A little more relaxed. <laughs> and, and if we were, if we were both that way, then I get to share more responsibility because I'm at least partly responsible for your behavior. So <laughs> we, we both did a better job. Yay. Yay. Yes. Hello, everybody. Thank you for sticking around and listening to that episode. I hope you were able to soak up some seriously deep and meaningful rod wisdom. Uh, if you enjoyed this conversation, I highly recommend listening to the first one that we recorded episode 21, I believe. What you may have noticed is that I definitely forgot to ask my dad what books he would recommend, which is annoying because I also forgot to ask him the first time around when we released our podcast last year at some point. I think I'm just like thinking of the conversation with my dad as sort of different than regular podcast guests. So I totally forget what I normally do. Anyway, I was sure to ask him offline what books he would recommend if I had asked him that question live. And the books that he said were so my dad in so many ways. The first one was The Complete Lyrics of Cole Porter. He said it's a book he's cherished. And another book called Scandinavian Design, which he said is like design porn. Um, And then finally, the last book that he recommends is The Trouble with Normal by Michael Michael Warner, which I believe is very, very unfortunately out of print. I have been trying to get Michael Warner on the podcast forever because The Trouble with Normal, which my dad gave to me when I was quite young, um, severely sort of shaped uh, my worldview in ways that I deeply, deeply appreciate. I there are a lot of amazing um, YouTube videos of Michael Warner talking online. He he has a, a new book out called Publix and Counterpublix, which I actually haven't read yet, but I have it with me in Colorado, so I'm hoping to do that. Uh, but anyway, my dad introduced me to this book. Michael Warner is a gay man and wrote a book um, sort of at the very beginning of the gay rights movement, at least specific to gay marriage, sort of speaking out against gay marriage, asking the questions of like, is this really what we want to fight for? Do we really want to fit into these sort of heteronormative structures of marriage? Do we want to, as gay men, rethink uh, what could be possible as it relates to community and peer support networks and relationships overall? So if you can find that book somewhere online or in a local bookstore used, uh, highly recommend that. So yeah, I will link all of those books in the description. If you would like to support the podcast, patreon.com slash Anya Kotz is where to do that. So you can get um, a little bit more involved in the community by way of our book club, WhatsApp chats, uh, contact list, all sorts of fun things. You can also always go to iTunes, hit subscribe, scroll down, leave some stars and a review. This helps the podcast reach more people. And of course, I always appreciate emails or messages on social media, or posts on social media, just sharing episodes with your friends, letting me know how certain episodes have affected you. Love all of it. Love all of you. Um, I'm going to play you out today with Star People by George Michael, because obviously I have to play a George Michael song after this podcast. Um, I think this song is really interesting and really smart, and certainly has a lot of themes that remind me... um, of my childhood growing up, not in a bad way in the sense that I had like very, what are those parents called? Stage parents, theater parents, 
dance parents where they like want you to be famous to fulfill their like unlived potential or something like that. Uh, thankfully, I had a dad who, although was very, very involved in theater, always said to me, if you don't have to do this, don't do it, which eventually led me to think, I don't want to do it. It's too much pressure. I would like to go to school and learn intellectual things and not go on endless auditions. So really grateful for that. And, uh, yeah, really grateful for all of you. So enjoy this song and I will catch you next time. I have so many exciting episodes to bring you and uh, can't wait. Hope you all are doing as well as can be in these very strange times. <laughs> Bye for now. Maybe your mama gave you a boy. Maybe your Daddy didn't love you enough, girl. <laughs>